you know, parenting is full of surprises. And there's really, you know, as a parent, I feel like there are a lot of ways I wasn't prepared, but there's so much of parenting that you just absolutely cannot be prepared for. And one of the things that I wasn't prepared for, especially now that we have four kids, but uh, as we continued to have kids was how different each child was going to be. You know, when you don't have kids, at least when I didn't have kids, I viewed all kids as kind of the same. They cry a lot, you know, snotty noses. They're all kind of the same. But then you have kids and their personalities are so incredibly different. And so Anna, my oldest, she's, she's smart, inquisitive, kind of spunky at times. Owen, my second oldest, he's, he's more laid back, easygoing, uh, cautious. The one thing they both had in common is they were fairly predictable as kids. You know, I didn't always like what we could predict, but they were fairly predictable. And then our third kid, Knox, uh, who's four now, Knox came along and all of the rules we learned about parenting were thrown out of the window when he was born because he is an absolute wild card. In particular, Knox is a runner. Anyone else ever had kids that are runners? You know what I'm talking There's a few of you giving me those nods, like I get it. Uh, Knox is a runner, which means, and I think he likes us. I, I don't think that's why, but he's just been known to bolt at times. And so one of uh, kind of the scariest memories I have was a couple years ago when Steph was pregnant with our fourth, and she had to run to Kroger, run an errand to Kroger, and she asked if I would be willing to watch all three kids, which was very intimidating at the time to watch all three of them by myself, made me very uncomfortable. But I said, sure, I, I can do that. And I was in the, the other room. She was in the kitchen heading out into the garage. And I was in the other room with the two oldest, helping Owen get on his pajamas. And, and I said, she said, all right, I'm leaving. I said, well, where's Knox? And she said, he's right here in the kitchen. I said, all right, because I knew I, I had to get in there quick. Otherwise, he might disappear. And so she leaves, and I try to maintain audible contact with him. You know, like, hey, Knox, you still there, buddy? Start asking him questions. Well, it goes silent really quickly. And so I help, you know, Owen get his pajamas on, and I go into the kitchen, and he's nowhere to be seen. Uh, and so I go into the dining room, and then I go into the living room, <laughs> and then I, you know, I commission Anna and Owen as the search party to go search for Knox. And I really started freaking out because when my wife left, there were three kids in the house, which means when she returns, there needs to be three kids in the house. And so I look out back, I look out front, I look out back, and now I'm starting to really freak out. And so I just, I run outside and start running around the house, like trying to see where he is. And I notice when I get to the front of the house that he's about six houses down in the middle of the road in his socks, just running. Where? I don't know, but he's running. And so I might be a big guy, but I can move when I have to. And so I hightailed it like Usain Bolt, barely touching the ground, running after him. And a neighbor actually kind of pulled around the corner and she saw him luckily. And so she stopped her car right in the middle of the road, you know, to make sure no one came and just blasted him. And so I like run up and I grab him and I'm, you know, simultaneously relieved and yet filled with righteous indignation at him and everything else. But I see the neighbor and I realize I know the neighbor. And so I give one of those like, oh, thank you. Uh, and the neighbor responds like, you know, not a very affirming, like, I totally get it. I have a runner too, but more like, yeah, your kid was in the middle of the road. And so 
I'm like carrying him very firmly back home and I'm simultaneously rebuking him and praying to the Lord, Lord, please don't let her call CPS. We're really good parents, I promise. Uh, and I tell you all of this for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, if after the service you see a little blonde-headed boy running for the water sin, please stop him because it's probably our Knox and that's just the way he is. Number two, I tell you this story because it is a great picture of what the Bible says humanity is like. What the Bible says is that from Adam and Eve onward, our natural disposition as people is to run. And in particular, to run from our heavenly Father. We run from him to any and everything that we think will bring us happiness, joy, pleasure, peace, contentment, whatever it is, things that ultimately can only be found in him. And so we run and we run and we run. Now, the good news of the Bible is that our God is a God who pursues us. Our God is a God who chases after us. And that's one of the things that makes Christianity so unique and so different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, you need to pursue God. You need to seek God. And so you can do this a number of different ways. Maybe it's living a very moral and upright life. Maybe it's following certain rules and religious procedures. Maybe it's going on a spiritual pilgrimage. But the one thing they all have in common is it is our responsibility to chase after God. Christianity tells us, no, no, no. We don't seek God because of our sin. Christianity tells us that our God chases after us and he pursues us. And nowhere do we, we get a picture of this that's more clear or vivid than in the life of this man, Jonah. We've been working through Jonah for a few weeks. This week, we're in Jonah chapter three. And to give you a little bit of background, if you haven't been here, or a little refresher if you have, in chapter one of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he's, God says, I want you to go preach against it. And so God wants Jonah, this prophet of his, to go to this city and to preach a message of judgment. Now, Nineveh was located in what is now Iraq, basically where Mosul is. And if you're like me, when I hear like Nineveh and Jonah, I don't know if it's just the culture we live in, but I think of Nineveh as kind of this small, like, desert town or a little village with a few people. But in actuality, Nineveh was a very great city. It had a population of about 600,000 people, which in that day was one of the largest cities in the world. So it had a great population, but it also had a very bad reputation. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and people viewed Nineveh as the biggest, baddest, most brutal city in the world. It was a stronghold of darkness. By all accounts, the people who lived there were perverse, sadistic, and evil. You can go read some of the other minor prophets who will tell you what Syria and what the, or what the Assyrians were like and just how brutal and savage they were. And so God says to his prophet, he says, I want you to go there and I want you to preach a, a message of judgment, preach against them. And Jonah instead of obeying God, disobeys and runs in the exact opposite direction and heads to Tarshish, which is a coastal city in Spain. I mean, the best modern day equivalent I could come up with would be as if God came to you and said, I want you to go to Vegas and I want you to preach against all of their filth and vileness and wickedness there. And you say, thanks, but no thanks. And then you hop on a plane and head to Naples, Florida. That's essentially what happened here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang back 
But God, you know, God pursues them. And Jonah learns a valuable lesson that you can try to run from God, but you certainly can't outrun God. And so God sends this storm that threatens to sink the ship that, that, on, that Jonah's on, and he's thrown overboard. And then God sends a great fish to swallow him. Now, that's what everyone remembers about the book of Jonah. That's, that's what sticks in our mind. But the book of Jonah, it's not ultimately about a big fish. It's about a big God who chases rebels, who chases the disobedient, who pursues them in love. And so the fish swallows him up as an agent of God's salvation. Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish. And then chapter two ends with Jonah, literally, and I quote, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And so that's where we pick up the text today, Jonah chapter three. And what we're gonna see in Jonah chapter three is that our God is a God, he's a God of second chances. Because in Jonah 3, verse 1, we're told that then, after Jonah got vomited onto dry land, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, we, a lot of us, we know the story, but, but the first time you're reading this, you have to wonder, what's God going to say to Jonah now? What's he going to say after he spent three days in the belly of the fish, after running from him? How dare you? How could you? Who do you think you are? No, God says to him the pretty much exact same thing he said in chapter one. Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. God basically says, Jonah, let's try this again. Let's run it back. Go and preach. And I think this is a bit strange. You know, it's one thing for God to spare Jonah's life. It's another thing altogether for God to call him once again to be his mouthpiece to the people of Nineveh. I mean, Jonah, in my estimation, has disqualified himself from ministry. If one of our pastors did what Jonah did, we would say thanks, but no thanks. Like, you need to step down, but that's not what God does. God, he, he calls Jonah and he says, I want you to go. And it's so strange because, gosh, maybe the equivalent would be if there was a soldier who was just court-martialed for being a coward. And then you came back and said, you know what? You're going to be in charge of the army now. That's what God does here. But that's not just what God does here. That's what God does over and over and over again in the scriptures. What we see in the Bible is that God continually calls flawed people, fallen people, flaky people. And he says, you know what? I think I like you. And I think you're the one that I want to lead my work. We see the clearest example of this with Jesus and his disciples. I mean, other than, you know, Judas, the, the flakiest disciple, uh, kind of the most brash and, you know, hard-headed disciple of Jesus is Peter. He's constantly putting his foot in his mouth, speaking up when he should remain silent, remaining silent when he should speak up. And, you know, the lowest point of Peter's life is when he says to Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, I'll, I'll go, I'll die with you. I'll follow you to the grave, Jesus. And then two hours later, he's denying Jesus around a campfire. I mean, he is a flaky guy. He is a failure of a guy. And yet Jesus comes to him after his resurrection and says, Peter, you're going to lead the church. Peter, you're my point, man. What does this teach us? What does Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 teach us? It teaches us this. 
that our past sinfulness does not preclude us from future usefulness in God's kingdom. Your past sinfulness does not preclude you from future usefulness in God's kingdom. Your past faithfulness, faithlessness, does not preclude you from future fruitfulness in God's kingdom. And in fact, what we we see here is that God in his wisdom can use our failures and use our sins to actually grow us and prepare us for his work. Now, I want to be really clear here because it'll make some of you uncomfortable when I say things like that. I'm not saying you should sin. Sin is stupid and sin is dumb. You should run from it, okay? But you don't and you won't because we are all sinful. And a lot of times we don't know what to do with that. And we think, gosh, this sin, it's going to, you know, really hinder me and hamper me from being able to serve God. And sometimes it will. But what we see over and over again in the Bible is that God and his power and his wisdom and his sovereignty actually can use us and our sinfulness, our brokenness, uh, all the ways that we fail, he can use it for his good. You know, when you think of Jonah, before his three-night stay in the belly of the fish, Jonah wasn't ready to be an evangelist to the Ninevites. Jonah wasn't ready to go and tell them about God's love. He had no sympathy or compassion for them. In Jonah's minds, the Ninevites were his enemies. In Jonah's mind, the Ninevites were godless pagans who deserved to be damned to hell. That's how he viewed them. And so Jonah, when God calls him, he doesn't want to go. And he, you know, he would rather die than pray or preach to the Ninevites. So what needed to happen Jonah, he needed to be emptied of his self-righteousness. He needed to be emptied of his pride. He needed to be emptied of his racism. And he needed to be filled with the love of God for those people before he'd be any use to God or to the Ninevites. And so often the way God empties us and breaks us of our self-righteousness is by allowing us to fall face first into sin and letting us sit with it for a while. He let Jonah sit with it for three days. Sometimes he'll let you sit for even longer. And this I'm trying to tell you, in the sovereign, mysterious wisdom of God, letting us sit in our sin, it actually can be so for our good. You know, most of us here, we live in a culture that's been heavily influenced by Christianity, and so we know a lot of words. We know words like sin, righteousness, grace, justification. We all have some concept of them, but so often our understanding of sin and our understanding of grace, it remains an abstraction to us. And what I mean is this, if someone were to ask you, are you a sinner? You would say, yes, probably. If someone said, okay, name your sins. That's where a lot of people in the American church would struggle. What would they say? Well, I guess sometimes I get angry. Uh, Sometimes I eat too much, maybe. I get frustrated with my kids. We as a people, we struggle to name our sin. And this actually, this weird thing's happened in the American church where (laughs) we've left out some of the most important parts of the Bible. We're so concerned with holiness and righteousness, which we should be, that we lose sight of the fact that we can't be holy or righteous apart from the Spirit of God. But so often we leave the Spirit of God to the side, 
And what's happened in the American church is we created a culture of people who are trying really, really hard to be good and who are afraid to admit that they're bad. And because they're afraid to admit they're bad, they don't want to think about sin. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to be honest about sin. Sin remains an abstraction. But when sin remains an abstraction, grace remains an abstraction. What is grace? I don't know. I think it means God loves us. Like, well, of course we're all sinners, but God loves us. That's grace. It's not real. It's not personal. It's not something that actually changes you. Because it's just, you know, a concept. But when you find yourself knee-deep in sin, maybe in the belly of the fish in sin without excuse, without explanation, without being able to point a finger to anyone else, you're just there, you're guilty, and you know you're guilty, that, man, that is a strange gift from God because that is a place where you actually come to understand grace. Without grace, we're gonna live our lives continually trying. I mean, we'll pay lip service to the grace of God, the cross, all that stuff, but we're gonna live our lives perpetually trying to justify ourselves before God, before others, and before ourselves. You know, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm a pretty good person compared to a lot of people. Grace, when it moves from the abstract into our lives, when you experience it in a real and profound way, it humbles you and it propels you. You know, those who've experienced grace most profoundly are those who are most eager to share that grace with others. Those who have experienced grace most profoundly are those who are most eager to share it with others. You know, one of the challenges of pastoring in this culture, one of the challenges I feel as a pastor, our pastors feel, is I don't know if we're a church that really loves people who are far from God. I don't know if we're a church that actively seeks to tell people who are far from God about what Jesus Christ has done. Now, as a pastor, I could get up and I could just say, hey, you need to evangelize more. You need to go share the gospel with non-believers. And you probably would get tired of it and I'd get tired of it and it wouldn't work. Why? Because it would just be me kind of motivating you out of guilt or compulsion. What really drives us, propels us, compels us is when we understand the grace of God. And Jonah, after this crazy ordeal he went through, finally came to a place where he realized, oh, wow. I mean, when he's in the belly of the whale, he has to recognize, I'm just like everyone else. I'm just as big of a rebel, but I think I'm better than everyone else. And when the fish spits him out on dry land, he's able to breathe fresh air. What an experience of grace. It's because he experienced that grace that when God puts the call before Jonah a second time, Jonah answers the call. We're told in verse 3 that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. The Hebrew actually says that it was a great city before God. It's something God cares about. Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Okay, and there's a plus and a minus to the sermon. The minus is it's a pretty harsh word. The positive is a very short sermon, you know? And so if you're gonna preach a harsh word, at least keep it short. This one's eight words. Jonah rolls into town. Hey, judgment's coming. You got 40 days. Now, 
People are, are divided, commentators, experts on the Bible, they're divided on this. I don't think this is all Jonah said. I imagine it was just a summary. But the point is still clear. If this is a summary of his message, imagine what the whole sermon would have been like. If this is what you're going to boil it down to, imagine what the essence of it, of it was. Now, when we read passages like that, it's so easy for us to say, well, there's God, you know, the God of wrath, the God of judgment, and there's certainly judgment here. But here's what I want you to see, and it's so important for understanding the book of Jonah, but really the entire Bible. Embedded in every warning of judgment in the Bible is actually a message of grace. Embedded in every warning of judgment is actually a message of grace. You know, if God in his heart just wanted to smash Nineveh, he wouldn't need a prophet. He would snap his fingers and they would be gone. If God wanted to smash him, he wouldn't need a prophet. If God wants to save him, he does need a prophet. He needs a messenger. He needs someone to go and proclaim, to warn them, and to call them. And so on the surface, it seems like Jonah's sermon is actually against Nineveh. The heart of the sermon is not God. God desperately longs to see people turn from their sin, from their selfishness, and their wickedness. God sends these warnings because he loves people, not because he hates them, because he cares about people, not because he wants to crush them. You know, any parents count to three with their kids ever? I do. I'll admit to it all the time. I don't want to, but I do. You know what we see in this text? God says, I'm going to count to 40. You got 40 days. That's the whole reason he gives them 40 days. He says, you've got 40 days. Receive the word. And then by the grace of God in verse 5, we're told that the Ninevites understood this and the Ninevites believed God. And I love how it says the Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. The Ninevites, they weren't changed because Jonah was some persuasive preacher you know, who was just really good at telling stories and very compelling. The Ninevites were changed because they recognized that the word that Jonah brought was a word from God. And the Ninevites repent. And actually what happens in Nineveh here in Jonah 3 is one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in the history of the world. And it begins with repentance. And their repentance actually is a great picture for us of what true repentance looks like. You know, the word repent, it's another one of those words that, that we all know, but it's so abstract to us. Well, as we look at what the Ninevites did here, repentance moves from the abstract to the very real particulars of life. And we see three vital signs of repentance in the Ninevites. Number one, first, they mourn over their sin. We're told in verse five that after they believed God, as they believed God, they declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd, or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Now, the sackcloth, the dust, the fastings, they were, 
the fasting, there were all these uh, outward manifestations of what was going on in the hearts of the Ninevites. They were convicted of their sin. They were broken over their sin. They're mourning for their sin. And the, the first step of repentance is you get to a place where you don't laugh about your sin, you don't joke about your sin, you actually feel sorrow and you mourn over your sin. You know, as a parent, there's nothing more frustrating than when your kid sins, they know they sin, you know they sin, you confront them, and they have zero remorse. Did you really just hit your brother in the face with a bat? Yes. You know that's wrong, right? Sorry. No, whenever that happens, oh, you're not sorry. You, I turn into an old man, you know? You're not sorry. You're going to be sorry. I'm going to rub this in until you get sorry. Or they blame. Well, yeah, I hit him with the bat, but he took the remote from me. As if that, that makes it okay. But I see it in my kids, and gosh, I see it in all of us. That's what we do, right? We might say, I'm sorry, but we don't actually feel remorse, or maybe we blame others, or, or maybe we make excuses. The Ninevites don't blame anyone else. They don't make excuses saying, well, it's just been a really hard time for us, and they're not just going through the motions. They own their sin, and they're broken by it. It's not just a few people. It's everyone. I mean, from the king to the common folk, all the way down to the cattle. Did you guys catch that? The king says, all right, I'm not going to eat. You're not going to eat. And the cattle, they're not going to eat either. Instead, we're all going to put on sackcloth. And I'll confess, the first time I read this and I was preparing to preach it, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> You're going to go put sackcloth on your cows and not let them eat? What, what in the world? Well, I don't know a whole lot about farm animals, but what I do know is they need to eat. And if you don't feed farm animals, you know what they do? begin to bleat, bellow, groan, and moan. And so for 40 days, what's happening is all work has ceased in Nineveh. People aren't eating. And the silence that's kind of filling the air is actually being filled with the moaning and groaning of these beasts of burden crying out from their hunger as a symbol of the mourning of the people of Nineveh. There's deep sorrow over sin. It doesn't stop there. They mourn over their sin. They have sorrow over their sin, but then they turn from their sin. We're told in verse 8 that the king cries out and he says, let them, let us give up their evil ways and their violence. You see, while sorrow over sin, it's a part of repentance, sorrow over sin is not the whole of repentance. And I will tell you as a pastor, if I could just get you to understand this truth, you would save me so much time. Not that it's, that's what it's about. But how many times do I have to step into situations and someone will say, well, he said he was sorry. She said they were sorry. That's not repentance. Sorrow doesn't equal repentance. It's a good start. Repentance, the word repent actually means to turn. And some of you, you feel sorry for sin, but you haven't turned, which means you haven't actually repented from it. True repentance requires a turning away from sin, saying, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I mean, the king of Nineveh, what does he say? Let's give up our evil, wicked ways. Let's give up our violence. Let's put it down. Let's take our hands off it, and let's move into a new direction in life. Movement one is there's sorrow for sin. Movement 
two is you turn from your sin, and movement three, which is the most important one, is that you, you turn to God. That in repentance, it's not just about feeling bad or moral reformation. What repentance ultimately is, is turning to the God who created you and saying, I want to embrace your vision for my life. You created me, you hardwired me, you know what's best, and I want to step into that. Verse 8, the king says, let everyone call urgently on God. And then I love verse 9, the king says, because who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I love that, who knows? You know why I love that? Because there's no presumption. (laughs) There's no, if we do this, God better forgive us. If we do this, God will make us happy and give us everything we want. No, the king says, if we do this, who knows? God may relent. He may show us compassion. He may turn from his fierce anger. And what we read in verse 10 is that's exactly what happened. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. When God saw that the Ninevites weren't just paying lip service, but actually were turning from their evil ways, and I think they were turning to him, he had compassion on them. And he withheld the destruction that he'd threaten. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Ninevites, of the Assyrian people, this should bother you at least a little bit. You should be asking, what? So they fasted for a while and they didn't feed their animals and they put on sackcloth. And so God said, you know what? It's all fine. I mean, these are evil people. You can read about them. Their enemies, when they would capture their enemies, they would skin them alive. And some of them were so skilled at it that they could skin you alive uh, and hand you your skin. They would bury people in the sand up to their neck and they would take their tongues and then they would drive a stake through their tongue and let them die of starvation in the desert or die of dehydration in the desert. I mean, that's awful, but those are the only ones that I felt like I could share with you. Like these are wicked, brutal, vicious, awful people. Why in the world would a holy and just God relent from bringing his wrath and judgment on such a wicked and violent people? And the answer is because while our God is a God of justice, he's also a God of grace. And the answer is because God's heart, God's desire is to see people, no matter how wicked, turn from their wickedness and turn and experience life with him. And it's scandalous. And it should be scandalous that God would say, it doesn't matter what you've done. You can turn and experience life with me. So many of us, we think of God, or maybe in particular, the God of the Old Testament, as if he were a different God than the God of the New Testament or the God of today. He's the same God. But we think of him as kind of this petulant, angry child, this seventh grader, you know, who when he gets mad, he just smites people. He loves to play the game, save, save, damn. What we actually see in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God desperately longs to save people, that God doesn't enjoy bringing judgment on people, that at his very heart is compassion and love, greater compassion or love than we have. I mean, in Exodus Exodus 34, 
God reveals himself to Moses and he said, Moses, I'm gonna tell you my name. You wanna know who I am? Here's my name. Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What's so fascinating to me about Exodus 34 is God reveals nine things about his love before he reveals one, things about, one thing about his judgment or justice. Here are the nine things. Number one, that he is a God of compassion. Number two, he is gracious. Number three, he is slow to anger. Number four, he is abounding in love. Number five, he is abounding in faithfulness. Number six, he maintains love's to thousands. Number seven, he forgives wickedness. Number eight, he forgives rebellion. Number nine, he forgives sin. God says, you want to know what I'm like? This is what I am like. I am more compassionate and gracious than you can even begin to comprehend, but I am also just. And I will not let evil and wickedness go on forever. There will be a day of judgment there will be wrath for sin. But it's so important to understand, but God doesn't delight in that. God doesn't take joy in pouring out wrath on people. Ezekiel 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. This is God's heart. I don't want to punish people. I don't want to pour wrath out on them. I don't want to destroy them. If I have to, I will. If they're going to continue to live in a state of rebellion and destroy everything that I love and everything that I care about, eventually judgment will come. But he doesn't take joy in it. I mean, Isaiah 28 describes God's judgment and his wrath as his strange work. Describes it as his alien work. You can look it up. Isaiah 28, verse 21. God's judgment and wrath are described as his strange and alien work, which I think means that that judgment and wrath are not God's primary ways in the world. It's, they're, they're secondary ways that God works in the world. And God does it to advance a greater goal. You know, his glory, the good of his people, the good of this earth. And because of this, this is why when you read the scriptures, you see God relenting over and over and over and over again. I mean, you can almost open any book in the Bible and what you'll see is God relenting, turning from his wrath, withholding his anger or his judgment when people come to him with sincerity and humility and they plead with him. And they say, we don't want to continue to live in this. We want you to save us. And God says, I'll relent. God is always relenting in the Bible over and over and over again, except for one time. There's only one time I know of in the Bible, where someone comes to God in sincerity of heart and pleads with him, God, withhold your judgment, and God says no. You know where that is? It's in Matthew 26. It's the night that Jesus is betrayed. Right before his betrayal, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, and he prays, Father, take this cup from me. Now the cup he's referring to, it's a cup that's referenced in the book of Isaiah. It's the cup of God's wrath. So all of the wrath and anger and judgment that God has towards all of the wickedness and violence and abuse in this world, all of that 
goes into this metaphorical cup. And Jonah's sitting in the garden, or Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, God, I don't want to drink the cup. Like, take the cup from me. And Jesus had a right. He was sinless. He didn't do anything that added to that cup. And so he prays and God says no. And then he prays a second time and God says no. And he prays a third time and God says no. And from that moment on, he begins to drink the cup. When he's betrayed with a kiss by his friend, that's a sip from the cup. You know, when he is stripped naked and spit upon and mocked, those are all, all gulps from the cup. And then he's lashed and he's crowned with a crown of thorns and he's pinned to a tree and there, there are all these gulps from the cup of God's wrath being poured on him. And then you, you think he's at the end, he's on the cross, he's about to die. You think, you think he drank all that was in the cup and God the Father tips the cup a little bit more. He says, there's still more in there. You got to drink it to the dregs. You got to get to the grit at the very bottom. This is why in Matthew 27, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Matthew's writing in Greek, but for some reason he includes this cry, this shriek that Jesus makes from the cross of being forsaken by God. He includes it in Aramaic. You know why? Because this was eyewitness testimony. Because when Jesus cried this, this shriek, this, this cry of terror, it was seared into the minds of everyone who witnessed his crucifixion. They never forgot it. If you were there, you would never forget it either. It was the cry of the holy, sinless one, the one who deserves nothing but love and grace and compassion, receiving the full weight of God's wrath, which was ultimately God forsaking him on the cross. You're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. Because Jesus went to the cross, because he bore the wrath, the judgment, that means that our God is just. He's not capricious or whimsical. He's not, oh, sometimes I'm going to forgive and sometimes I'm going to damn. It just depends how I'm feeling on the day. No. He is absolutely just. And gosh, this is so much hope if you're a victim of violence or oppression, that God doesn't let you know, sin go unpunished. But God is also gracious because Jesus Christ took our sin in his own flesh. And because he did that, we can trust God to relent from pouring out his wrath on us because he's already poured it out to the very bottom on his son. And if you're in Christ, what that means is there's no wrath, the cup's empty. Like there's nothing left. Like this, you guys think it's full, but it's empty. Like there's nothing left in the cup. And that means we get nothing but grace in Christ. And that changes everything. So many people, they talk about this chapter, and they're like, it shows us that our God is a God of second chances. And I laugh at that. 
If our God is a God of second chances, I'm just as doomed if he's a God of only first chances. If that means that God only gives us one do-over, I would screw it up in five minutes. Our God, for those in Christ, he's not a God of second chances. He's a God of infinite, innumerable, uncountable, unmeasurable chances. He's a God who relents again and again because there's nothing left in the cup. And because he loves us. And because his heart is a heart of compassion. And he wants to draw all people to himself. And so if you're here and you're in sin right now, maybe you haven't even thought of it like that. You're in habitual sin. You're doing stuff that you know is wrong, but you've even become numb to it. I pray that God, through his word and by his spirit, he would pierce through that numbness. He would bring you to conviction. Now, this could be an addiction of sorts, like alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, or it could just be like a a besetting posture of anger or hatred or bitterness or selfishness or greed. But if you've got this going on in your life, and man, we all got our junk. If you have this going on in your life, I pray that you would repent. She would lay it down so you could experience a better life. And that's the Christians I'm talking to. For the non-Christians here, (laughs) my prayer for you is, man, you would see that God desperately wants to save you. And there is a day of judgment coming. It could be tomorrow. It could be 3,000 years from now. I don't know when it's going to be. There will be a day of judgment, but right now we live in a time of grace. We live in a season of God's patience where he's calling out to any and everyone saying, come to me, experience my grace and my forgiveness. And so if you are in Christ, if you're not in Christ, my encouragement to you is to look to him, to seek his face, to confess your sins, to turn to him. And the scriptures say, if you do that, he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So as we come to the Lord's table and we're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken, and his blood that was shed, let's celebrate the fact that this is true and it's unchanging. I mean, this is one of the reasons the Lord gave us this because we're so freaking forgetful. We forget all the time. Like we forget. And we forget. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for us. We forget that God's heart is a heart of compassion. So if you're in Christ, come and remember. Drink and remember. If you're not in Christ, look to him. Let me pray.